Part three of Chapter three of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Well, 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 cried the young officer in sufficiently bad French. What game are you up to here? Who was that who was yelling for help? And what are you trying to do to him? It was at that moment that I learned to bless those months which Obreon, the descendant of the Irish kings, had spent in teaching me the tongue of the English. My ankles had just been freed, so that I had only to slip my hands out of the cords, and with a single rush I had flown across, picked up my sabre where it lay by the fire, and hurled myself on to the saddle of poor Vidal's horse. Yes, for all my wounded ankle I never put foot to stirrup, but was in the seat in a single bound. I tore the halter from the tree, and before these villains could so much as snap a pistol at me, I was beside the English officer. "'I surrender to you, sir,' I cried, though I dare say my English was not very much better than his French. "'If you will look at that tree to the left, you will see what these villains do to the honourable gentlemen who fall into their hands.' The fire had flared up at that moment, and there was poor Vidal exposed before them, as horrible an object as one could see in a nightmare. "'God damn!' cried the officer, and "'God damn!' cried each one of the four troopers, which is the same as when we cry, "'Mon Dieu!' Out rasped the five swords, and the four men closed up. One, who wore a sergeant's chevrons, laughed and clapped me on the shoulder. "'Fight for your skin, froggy!' said he. "'Ah, it was so fine to have a horse between my thighs,' and a weapon in my grip. I waved it above my head and shouted in my exultation. The chief had come forward with that odious smiling face of his. "'Your Excellency will observe that this Frenchman is our prisoner,' said he. "'You are a rascally robber,' said the Englishman, shaking his sword at him. "'It is a disgrace to us to have such allies. By my faith, if Lord Wellington were of my mind, we would swing you up on the nearest tree.' But my prisoner, said the brigand in his suave voice, he shall come with us to the British camp. Just a word in your ear before you take him. He approached the young officer, and then, turning as quick as a flash, he fired his pistol in my face. The bullet scored its way through my hair and burst a hole on each side of my busby. Seeing that he had missed me, he raised the pistol and was about to hurl it at me when the English sergeant, with a single back-handed cut, nearly severed his head from his body. His blood had not reached the ground, nor the last curse died on his lips, before the whole horde was upon us. But with a dozen bounds, and as many slashes, we were all safely out of the glade, and galloping down the winding track which led to the valley. It was not until we had left the ravine far behind us, and we were right out in the open fields, that we ventured to halt, and see what injuries we had sustained. For me, wounded and weary as I was, my heart was beating proudly, and my chest was nearly bursting my tunic, to think that I, Etienne Gerard, had left this gang of murderers so much by which to remember me. My faith, they would think twice before they ventured again to lay hands upon one of the third hussars. So carried away was I that I made a small oration to these brave Englishmen, and told them who it was that they had helped to rescue. I would have spoken of glory also, and of the sympathies of brave men, 
but the officer cut me short. "'That's all right,' said he. "'Any injuries, Sergeant? "'Trooper Jones's horse hit with a pistol bullet on the fetlock. "'Trooper Jones to go with us. "'Sergeant Halliday with Troopers Harvey and Smith "'to keep to the right until they touch the vedettes of the German hussars. "'So these three jingled away together "'while the officer and I followed at some distance by the trooper "'whose horse had been wounded.' rode straight down in the direction of the English camp. Very soon we had opened our hearts, for we each liked the other from the beginning. He was of the nobility, this brave lad, and he had been sent out scouting by Lord Wellington to see if there were any signs of our advancing through the mountains. It is one advantage of a wandering life like mine that you learn to pick up those bits of knowledge which distinguish the man of the world. I have, for example, hardly ever met a Frenchman who could repeat an English title correctly. If I had not travelled, I should not be able to say, with confidence, that this young man's real name was Milor the Hon Sir Russell Bart, this last being an honourable distinction, so that it was as the Bart that I usually addressed him, just as in Spanish one might say the Don. As we rode beneath the moonlight in the lovely Spanish night, we spoke our minds to each other, as if we were brothers. We were both of an age, you see, both of the light cavalry also, the 16th Light Dragoons was his regiment, and both with the same hopes and ambitions. Never have I learned to know a man so quickly as I did the Bart. He gave me the name of a girl whom he had loved at a garden called Vauxhall, and, for my own part, I spoke to him of little Coralie of the opera. He took a lock of hair from his bosom, and I a garter. Then we nearly quarrelled over Hussar and Dragoon, for he was absurdly proud of his regiment, and you should have seen him curl his lip and clap his hand to his hilt when I said that I hoped it might never be its misfortune to come in the way of the third. Finally he began to speak about what the English call sport, and he told such stories of the money which he had lost over which of two cocks could kill the other, or which of two men could strike the other the most in a fight for a prize, that I was filled with astonishment. He was ready to bet upon anything in the most wonderful manner, and when I chanced to see a shooting star, he was anxious to bet that he would see more than me. Twenty-five francs a star, and it was only when I explained that my purse was in the hands of the brigands that he would give over the idea. Well, we chatted away in this very amiable fashion until the day began to break, when suddenly we heard a great volley of musketry from somewhere in front of us. It was very rocky and broken ground, and I thought, although I could see nothing, that a general engagement had broken out. The Bart laughed at my idea, however, and explained that the sound came from the English camp, where every man emptied his piece each morning, so as to make sure of having a dry priming. "'In another mile we should be up with the outposts,' said he. I glanced round at this, and I perceived that we had trotted along at so good a pace during the time that we were keeping up our pleasant chat, that the dragoon with the lame horse was altogether out of sight. I looked on every side, but in the whole of that vast rocky valley there was no one, save only the Bart and I. Both of us armed, you understand, and both of us well mounted. I began to ask myself whether, after all, it was quite necessary that I should ride that mile which would bring me to the British outposts. 
Now, I wish to be very clear with you on this point, my friends, for I would not have you think that I was acting dishonorably or ungratefully to the man who had helped me away from the brigands. You must remember that of all duties, the strongest is that which a commanding officer owes to his men. You must also bear in mind that war is a game which is played under fixed rules, and when these rules are broken, one must at once claim the forfeit. If, for example, I had given a parole, then I should have been an infamous wretch had I dreamed of escaping. But no parole had been asked of me. Out of overconfidence and the chance of the lame horse dropping behind, the Bart had permitted me to get upon equal terms with him. Had it been I who had taken him, I should have used him as courteously as he had me, but at the same time I should have respected his enterprise so far as to have him deprived of his sword and seen that I had at least one guard beside myself. I reined up my horse and explained this to him, asking him at the same time whether he saw any breach of honour in my leaving him. He thought about it and several times repeated that which the English say when they mean mon Dieu. You would give me the slip, would you? said he. If you can give no reason against it. The only reason that I can think of, said the Bart, is that I should instantly cut your head off if you were to attempt it. Two can play at that game, my dear Bart, said I. Then we'll see who can play at it best, he cried, pulling out his sword. I had drawn mine also, but I was quite determined not to hurt this admirable young man who had been my benefactor. Consider, said I, you say that I'm your prisoner, I might with equal reason say that you are mine. We are alone here, and though I have no doubt you are an excellent swordsman, you can hardly hope to hold your own against the best blade in the six light cavalry brigades. His answer was a cut at my head. I parried and shore off half of his white plume. He thrust at my breast. I turned his point and cut away the other half of his cockade. Curse your monkey tricks, he cried, as I wheeled my horse away from him. Why should you strike at me, said I. You see that I will not strike back. That's all very well, said he, but you've got to come along with me to the camp. I shall never see the camp, said I. I'll lay you nine to four, you do, he cried, as he made at me, sword in hand. But those words of his put something new into my head. Could we not decide the matter in some better way than fighting? The Bart was placing me in such a position that I should have to hurt him, or he would certainly hurt me. I avoided his rush, though his sword-point was within an inch of my neck. I have a proposal, I cried. We shall throw dice as to which is the prisoner of the other. He smiled at this. It appealed to his love of sport. Where are your dice? he cried. I have none. Nor I. But I have cards. Cards let it be, said I. And the game? I leave it to you. Ecarte, then, the best of three. I could not help smiling as I agreed, for I do not suppose that there were three men in France who were my masters at the game. I told the bard as much as we dismounted. He smiled also as he listened. I was counted the best player at waiters, said he. With even luck you deserve to get off if you beat me. So we tethered our two horses and sat down one on either side of a great flat rock. The Bart took a pack of cards out of his tunic and I had only to see him shuffle to convince me that I had no novice to deal with. We cut and the deal fell to him. 
My faith, it was a stake worth playing for. He wished to add a hundred gold pieces a game. But what was money when the fate of Colonel Etienne Gerard hung upon the cards? I felt as though all those who had reason to be interested in the game, my mother, my hussars, the sixth corps d'armée, Ney, Massina, even the emperor himself, were forming a ring around us in that desolate valley. Heavens, what a blow to one and all of them should the cards go against me! But I was confident, for my écarté play was as famous as my swordsmanship, and save old Bouvet of the Hussars of Bercheny, who won seventy-six out of one hundred and fifty games off me, I have always had the best of a series. The first game I won right off, though I must confess that the cards were with me, and that my adversary could have done no more. In the second I never played better, and saved a trick by a finesse, but the Bart voled me once, marked the king, and ran out in the second hand. My faith, we were so excited that he laid his helmet down beside him, and I my busby. I'll lay my round mare against your black horse, said he. Done, said I. Sword against sword. Done, said I. Saddle, bridle, and stirrups, he cried. Done, I shouted. I had caught this spirit of sport from him. I would have laid my hussars against his dragoons had they been ours to pledge. And then began the game of games. Oh, he played, this Englishman. He played in a way that was worthy of such a stake. But I, my friends, I was superb. Of the five which I had to make to win, I gained three on the first hand. The Bart bit his moustache and drummed his hands, while I already felt myself at the head of my dear little rascals. On the second I turned the king, but lost two tricks, and my score was four to his two. When I saw my next hand, I could not but give a cry of delight. If I cannot gain my freedom on this, thought I, I deserve to remain forever in chains. Give me the cards, landlord, and I will lay them out on the table for you. Here was my hand. Knave and ace of clubs, queen and knave of diamonds, and king of hearts. Clubs were trumps, mark you, and I had but one point between me and freedom. He knew it was the crisis, and he undid his tunic. I threw my dolman on the ground. He led the ten of spades. I took it with my ace of trumps, one point in my favour. The correct play was to clear the trumps, and I led the knave. Down came the queen upon it, and the game was equal. He led the eight of spades, and I could only discard my queen of diamonds. Then came the seven of spades, and the hare stood straight up on my head. We each threw down a king at the final. He had won two points, and my beautiful hand had been mastered by his inferior one. I could have rolled on the ground as I thought of it. They used to play very good écarté at Watier's in the year ten. I say it, I, Brigadier Gerard. The last game was now for all. This next hand must settle it one way or the other. He undid his sash, and I put away my sword belt. He was cool, this Englishman, and I tried to be so also, but the perspiration would trickle into my eyes. The deal lay with him, and I may confess to you, my friends, that my hand shook so that I could hardly pick my cards from the rock. But when I raised them, what was the first thing that my eyes rested upon? It was the king. The king, the glorious king of trumps. My mouth was open to declare it when the words were frozen upon my lips by the appearance of my comrade. 
He held his cards in his hand, but his jaw had fallen, and his eyes were staring over my shoulder with the most dreadful expression of consternation and surprise. I whisked round, and I was myself amazed at what I saw. Three men were standing quite close to us, fifteen metres at the farthest. The middle one was of a good height, and yet not too tall, about the same height, in fact, that I am myself. He was clad in a dark uniform with a small cocked hat and some sort of white plume upon the side. But I had little thought of his dress. It was his face, his gaunt cheeks, his beak-like nose, his masterful blue eyes, his thin, firm slit of a mouth, which made one feel that this was a wonderful man, a man of a million. His brows were tied into a knot, and he cast such a glance at my poor Bart from under them that one by one the cards came fluttering down from his nerveless fingers. Of the two other men, one, who had a face as brown and hard as though it had been carved out of old oak, wore a bright red coat, while the other, a fine portly man with bushy side whiskers, was in a blue jacket with gold facings. Some little distance behind three orderlies were holding as many horses, and an escort of dragoons was waiting in the rear. "'Eh, Crawford, what the deuce is this?' asked the thin man. "'Do you hear, sir?' cried the man with the red coat. "'Lord Wellington wants to know what this means.' My poor Bart broke into an account of all that had occurred, but that rock face never softened for an instant. "'Pretty fine, upon my word, General Crawford,' he broke in. "'The discipline of this force must be maintained, sir. "'Report yourself at headquarters as a prisoner.' It was dreadful to me to see the Bart mount his horse and ride off with hanging head. I could not endure it. I threw myself before this English general. I pleaded with him for my friend. I told him how I, Colonel Gerard, would witness what a dashing young officer he was. Ah, my eloquence might have melted the hardest heart. I brought tears to my own eyes, but none to his. My voice broke and I could say no more. "'What weight do you put on your mules, sir, in the French service?' he asked. "'Yes, that was all this phlegmatic Englishman had to answer to these burning words of mine. "'That was his reply to what would have made a Frenchman weep upon my shoulder.' "'What weight on a mule?' asked the man with the red coat. Two hundred and ten pounds,' said I. "'Then you load them deucedly badly,' said Lord Wellington. "'Remove the prisoner to the rear.' His dragoons closed in upon me, and I, I was driven mad as I thought that the game had been in my hands, and that I ought at that moment to be a free man. I held the cards up in front of the general. See, my lord, I cried, I played for my freedom and I won, for, as you perceive, I hold the king. For the first time a slight smile softened his gaunt face. On the contrary, said he, as he mounted his horse, it is I who won, for, as you perceive, my king holds you. End of chapter 3